a little disturbing because it's out of a response to Jeff Greer, our pastor, being sick this week. And um, I love to preach and teach and to share God's word, but I don't like the circumstances in which I'm sharing this week because uh, he has suffered from a sinus infection for the last couple of months, then left for Nigeria. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, he's been talking about this aquaponics um, movement that is going to be able to create opportunities to share the gospel with so many different people. They go to Nigeria, a team goes to Nigeria, implements this process, and he was going to come in today and wanted to talk to you about that as well as other local and global missions. But in addition to his sinus infection, which by the grace of God was relieved completely while he was in Nigeria, it came back full force when he came home. Um, on top of that, most of the team that went to Nigeria has been battling a, a sickness this week that sent a few to the hospital. Um, it sent Jeff to the ER on Thursday or on Wednesday. Um, if you know anything about Jeff Greer, you know he's a don't call in, crawl in kind of guy. Like I mean, he does not miss work for anything. So when I heard ER and Jeff, it's usually, who's he visiting there? It's never a, oh, he's there. Um, so for Jeff to be in the emergency room this week, he's really sick. Um, the word so far is that he's, he's feeling better when he's laying down, but standing up, he's dizzy and, and a little disoriented. So if you can imagine the amazing visionary mind of Jeff Greer having to lay down all day and just think. Um, so he's got a lot of ideas for us, I'm sure, when he comes back. Uh, but keep praying for him and his family. Wednesday, when I heard that he was in the emergency room, I just reached out to the family and said, if you need someone to preach or if you, if you haven't thought about that, if he stays sick, let me know. Thursday at about 11 in the morning, I got a text from Jeff that just said, you preach. That's all I got. <laughs> Two words. <laughs> I haven't heard from him since. I'm assuming he's okay. Um, but I got, you preach. And so from that point on, I uh, started praying and seeking God as to what he wanted us to focus on this morning as a church and what words he wanted us to stew on and meditate on within the context of this BU series that we're in the middle of. Um, it's, it's a series that's kind of catching on. Sometimes you get in the middle of teaching series and what Jeff and Ron Toby have been able to present to you has caught on so much that even this morning someone brought me in a BU hat. And they're like, look, it's our hat for our series. <laughs> like, will you wear it? And it, it, makes, it makes me look like I'm sick when I wear hats like this. So I didn't put it on. But look, you can order your BU hat if you want to put it on. I'm just kidding. Um, but it's actually Belmont University. Rick Crane was taking his daughter Carly to Belmont University. And he's in the store and he's looking over and he sees a BU hat. And he's, he's so like engulfed in the series. And he's like, Pastor Jeff needs one of those because BU, that's us. That's where we are right now. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a catchy thing to think, be you. Be yourself. In the context of life that you have, so that you can bring Christ into your sphere of influence. I love the word sphere of influence. I'm not sure how Jeff compiled the, the, that statement of bring Christ into your sphere of influence. But people who are, do ministry closely with me are almost sick of those words because I, I, I bleed them so much. Um, just in March, on the, the second weekend of March, one of the, the ministries that I oversee um, called 121. Um, I, I work for back-to-back -back ministries as a director of impact, which we do impact groups to get into high schools. And we do events called 121 events, which is simply Philippians 121, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And we do these events for next generation 
leaders and kingdom builders so that they would know Jesus now, begin building his kingdom as high school students, and then just unleash them when they have the resources that we get once we're adults. And so that's kind of our goal. And we were hosting this event in March called Experience Influence, where we brought in 90 student leaders from 11 area churches and said, we're going to train you to lead within the context of your sphere of influence. And we created seven different spheres of influence for these student leaders. And during the entire weekend, all we did was put them into experiences within the context of where they live their everyday life. Because my belief is we can talk it all day long. We can teach it in classrooms as much as we want to. But until I see how you lead, I don't know what you need to know next. When I see you in the context of leadership, when I see you experience God in the sphere of influence that you have, now I know how to pour into you. There are a lot of people this morning who woke up thinking that they could have coached a better game than John Calipari last night. I'm one of those people because they lost. And that meant mourning the loss of the University of Kentucky Wildcats for me last night. But until I'm standing on that sideline in that context with coaching, I don't know. I don't know how I coach in the context of his influence, that sphere. I don't know anything. I think I know. And so we have an entire genre of talk shows and radio stations and ESPN, the, you know, extreme kingdom of sports addicts, I'm one of, um, that says, I could do that better than you. I'm going to tell you how. But that doesn't work. The rule is, I'll show you how. And I believe that sphere of influence is so important for us to put next generation leaders in those sphere of influences so that they can change them now. And bringing Christ to those sphere of influences is a, a definite necessity. It's not a commodity. It's not something that the church might do. It's not something that the church should think about. It's not an idea as Grace Chapel. You should think, man, I wonder if maybe I should bring Jesus to my sphere of influence. You have to. If you don't take Jesus into the sphere of influence that you have, two things happen. One, you don't find the beauty of who you are in the kingdom of God. Two, the world doesn't know Jesus, and that turns out bad for everybody. If Jesus stays in church buildings, then it becomes religion. And when religion stays in church walls and buildings, it becomes critiqued. Monday morning quarterback, this is what they say, well, this is what I say. This is what they say they would do, well, this is what I say I would do. Pointless. But if we would bring Christ into the sphere of influence that each one of us has, people start to change. Forget about the programs. Forget about the stuff. People start to change, including the people that are bringing Christ to the other people. The story is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. But the story invites all of us in. And it's not in this context that says, if you want to pursue Jesus with your life, then sell everything and go to India and be a missionary. If Jesus told you to do that, do that. Stop waiting. 
if Jesus didn't tell you to do that, then remove the bar of what it looks like to be a believer and to to be a believer that is actually following Jesus. It says you have to be a pastor. You have to be a teacher. You have to be in Sunday school. You have to be a worship leader on stage. Be you in the context of the sphere that God gave you. That's what Jeff is trying to preach from the rooftops right now here and hoping that we get so that God's kingdom will grow. It's what I love to preach from the rooftops to the next generation and share with student after student after student that I meet. They're worth something now. They have a voice now. They can change everything now. And so can we. And so this morning, we're going to try to dive into that a little bit. How? What's the practical side of this? What's a biblically practical side? From, from God's perspective, how would Jesus bring himself into a sphere of influence? If we can focus on that and model our lives around that, then it doesn't matter what context of life we're living in. We can transform whatever context that is for us. So we're going to dive into Luke chapter 7 in a couple of minutes. If you want to turn there, we're going to get into it in a second. But if you would, I'd invite you to pray with me before we jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you praise for this service, for this time that we've set apart this week to learn from you. And I pray that what we would learn in the next few minutes would be reflected by the lives that we live in the moments of the rest of our life. In the places where you guide us and direct us, in the platforms of leadership that you give us, in the moments of humility that you create for us, I pray that we would take these truths and that we would transform the world around us by claiming them with the world. So Jesus, I pray and claim that your word is truth and that you are the word and that you will speak to us now and we surrender this time to you. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. I will admit to you that sharing a message on BU in kind of a marketplace or workplace ministry um, is uncomfortable for me. I haven't been where most of you are in over 12, oh no, over 14 years. As a full-time pastor, youth pastor, director of Impact at Back to Back um, for over the last almost 11 years, and then as a full-time ministry seminary student for four years prior to that, I haven't worked a secular job since like a part-time job at Abercrombie when I was in college and working in a factory the summer before I went to college 14, 15 years ago. I haven't been where you are. It's, it's different. I acknowledge that where you are on a regular basis is totally different than where I am on a regular basis. I get to wake up in the morning and open my Bible and study Greek if I want to. You're like, who would ever want to do that? I'm weird enough to want to. I hear voices in church movements that say, here's a new book out. What do we think about that? I get emailed about what I think about it. So I get to go sit at Starbucks and drink yummy, yummy coffee. And read books and then tell people what I think about them. That's not what some of you get to do when you wake up. You wake up in the morning and you walk into the same cubicle that you've been walking into for far too long. You walk into the same classroom with the same curriculum that you've taught for several years. Different students and that's what makes it fun. Different faces, but it's same stuff on some level. Some of you walk in and you have the same routine with the same guys before you sit down at your desk every day because work is work and there's this box and you walk into it and it's different. I totally understand that you get to walk up and some of it, some of it 
I envy. You walk up and it's kind of the same and there's some expectation that can be the same every day. I can wake up in the ministry context and say, where am I today? Dayton, Cincinnati, Columbus, Michigan. I had to go there once. I don't want to go back. Um, it was cold and snowy. And wh- who am I speaking to today? What students in crisis? It's, it's kind of chaotic. And there, there might be some routine for you and there might be some sameness and it might be a job that you've done for 20, 30 years. It's a different context when you're in ministry than when you're in marketplace ministry. And so I first want to acknowledge that I'm not trying to say, here's how you take Jesus into your job as if I know your job. I don't. I know church. I know youth ministry. I know youth conferences, kingdom of God stuff. I know that. I know people who know marketplace ministry, though. I know people who get a paycheck every day, and that's the extent of their job. And I know people who see their job, their family, their role as coach, teacher, after-school mentor, volunteer with PTA or whatever else that is going on as a platform to build God's kingdom. And those people seem to love life more than all the other people. They seem to find joy in everything more than all the other people. I know them. I'm not one of them because I get to do this. I get to raise my support and my family on this. It's fun for me. But I am so indebted and thankful to those of you who get it. Because without you, I can't be me. Without a high school music conductor named Charles Hunter, I'm not on a platform like this talking to you about a story that I love and telling you about a Jesus that I'm overwhelmed by. Because when I was a sophomore in high school, I had this question asked of me by a teacher. What are you going to do when you're not driving in driver's ed? You have to pick another class to go to. They offered driver's ed as part of school for us in Kentucky because they knew we'd all been driving since we were eight anyway on tractors and trucks on farms and illegally. And so they were like, we have to give you driver's ed or you'll kill us all. And so we had a class of driver's ed. We got to do it during school. Um, No, it wasn't tractors. It was actual cars that we drove. And we are going to class, but when you're not driving, it's a whole semester. And they're saying, you have to be a teacher's ed in another class. I wasn't ready for that question. I didn't know that going into the class. So I sit down in the class, and they're like, you have to be a teacher's aide. And I'm like, I don't have an option. I didn't talk to a teacher. I really don't want to get stuck in the office just sitting there every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., just sitting and maybe running a note to a class every once. I want to do something. So I look at my friend Randy, who's sitting in the class, and I'm like, what what did you do last year? Because he had to retake driver's ed. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, he was that guy. Um, And I'm like, what'd you do last year when you took this class? He's like, you're a jerk. I'm like, I know, but you did. So what class did you take? He's like, well, you don't have one? I'm like, no, I don't have a teacher's aid set up. I didn't know. I I didn't read that on this class syllabus. And he's like, just come with me and we'll go ask Mr. Hunter if you can be in with me. And I'm like, Mr. Hunter? He's like, yeah. I'm like, um, I don't know that I want to go there. He's like, why? I'm like, well, it's Mr. Hunter. Like if you're in choir, you love him. If you're not in choir, everybody in this school hates him. 
they think that he like kills students and hides them under the stage for the musicals. And if you don't like the musical, then you definitely aren't dead. And if you're an athlete, he really doesn't like you because you compete with all the money for all the musical programs. And so I'm an athlete. He's, he's going to hate me. I don't know if you grew up in a school that had that kind of like tension between sports and music and stuff. And I was like, on top of that, I don't sing and I don't play anything. Why am I going to see Mr. Hunter again? He's like, don't, I, he's like, don't worry. I've got it. Just trust me. I'm like, I don't know that I do. I don't know that our relationship is that close, but I don't have any other options. Okay, let's go. So we go down to Mr. Hunter's office, which is underneath the gym, which I thought was always ironic that they put the music teacher under the basketball court, which was the staple of Mason County High School. So I'm like, oh, you're under the basketball court. Uh, you're nemesis. And so I walk into his office, and he's like, you're Chris Cox. And I'm like, oh, I'm popular. I don't know that that's good. Um, and I'm like, yes, it's good to see you again, Mr. Hunter. And he's like, yeah, I remember the last time I saw you, you were quitting violin so that you could play football and you had just broken your sister's bow to her violin and you were having to pay me for it. That was fourth grade. And you remember that. You hate me. This is not going to work out well. And I'm like, yeah, I was just wondering if you needed a teacher's aid this hour. And he looks at me and he's like, with uh, Jacob and Randy? And I'm like, Yes, with Jacob and Randy. And he's like, do you know what you'll be doing? I have no idea. And do you sing? <laughs> do you still play an instrument? Nope. Okay, I'll see you next Tuesday. I have no idea what I am now doing, but I'll be here next Tuesday. That became the best relationship that I had ever engaged in in all of high school. I walked in to Mr. Hunter's office during second period the next week, and he said, what can you do? And I said, well, I mean, my dad's a carpenter. I can do this. I'm pretty good at this stuff. You know, I like the drama part of stuff, but I don't like the music side. I can't sing. So these are what I'm good at. And he's like, okay. For the next three years of high school, he took that list, and he gave me platforms to succeed in everything that I told him I was, that, I, that I liked about myself, that I thought I could do. He gave me opportunities to lead that I thought were insane. He would give me the keys to this big auditorium that was like six miles away from our high school because it was attached to a different building and say, here's the blueprint. You said your dad's a carpenter. Here's the set that I want built. I got you out of class for the next three periods. I was like, you got me out of class? Awesome. Um, I will be with you forever. And I got you out of class. Here's the blueprint. I want this in there so that we can do a musical in front of it. Can you make that happen? Sure, I can make that happen. You said you got me out of class. Make anything you want happen. He was like, you can get a team of up to five guys. You get them, you go down there. The only rule is, on your way back, stop at Arby's. This is what I like to eat for lunch. Bring it back every day. And no, I'm not giving you money for it. Okay. And for the next three years, we built sets, we constructed stuff, and by my senior year, whole choir orchestra is taking a trip to Washington, D.C., and he's coming up to me and he's going, hey, we're going to D.C., are you going? I'm like, no, I can't, I can't swing that and this, I've got too many financial stuff I'm putting in for colleges and all this. He's like, no, I want to know, are you going? And I'm like, no, I told you, I can't afford it. He's like, I didn't ask you if you could afford it, I asked you if you're going. I'm like, what? Okay, this is one of those places where I ask you a question back. I don't know, am I going? And he's like, yes, you're going. I got a scholarship for you. You're going to Washington, D.C. because I need you to set all this stuff up for me. You've become irreplaceable. So now I had to pay your way so that you could go with me. Yes, I'm irreplaceable. 
People don't say things like that all the time. He was playing to everything I needed to hear as a high school man that showed me I mattered, I have value, all of these things he was speaking. And then before I graduated, he said, so I see that you're going to Bible college. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Bible college. He's like, do you want me to write a recommendation for you? Yeah, I would love for you to write a recommendation for me. I, w- I really need that. That would be great. He's like, good, I'll make you look good. I'm like, I don't already look good. He's like, no, I'll make you look really good. I'm like, okay. Um, and, and then he's like, Chris, I have a question for you. What's the question? Do you love Jesus or do you go to church? What? Do you love Jesus or do you go to church? Busted. Said, uh, Mr. Runner, I go to church. He said, huh. I love Jesus. Here's eight things I need you to pick up for me today. That's the only time we ever talked about Jesus. I never forgot it, though. He was too busy being a reflection of Jesus in my life and showing Jesus to me within the context of his sphere of influence as a conductor and as a music director for him to browbeat me about the gospel and him be afraid that I might go to hell. He just kind of thought, hey, um, if I am Jesus to these students that are in my class, maybe they'll want Jesus because they'll long for who I am. And when they're desperate and when they're broken, maybe they'll walk in my office. No one walks back into an office at Mason County High School more as they after they graduate than students who were um, teacher's aides and part of the plays and musicals and stuff than in Mr. Mr. Hunter's orchestra and choir. No one goes back to see the coach. They don't see basketball coach. They don't see football coach. No one goes to see anybody else before they stop by Mr. Hunter's office and say, hey, thank you. On behalf of that kind of ministry, thank you for those of you who get it already. You spend life with the broken and the dirty You spend it looking at your employees as people, not a means to an end, not a project to get done. You look at the team that you're coaching, not as wins and losses, but as guys and girls to build into. Thank you. And so let's spend the next few minutes that we have figuring out how to do it even better. And maybe if in your life, You'd go, man, I don't know that there's one person would say I've influenced them like that. Maybe you learned this morning a way to approach life that puts you within the context of people who want to be transformed and want to be mentored and want to be built into, and then you'll have the tools to be able to invest in them and transform their lives because of who Jesus is to you. So we're going to dive into Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. I love that Luke puts this story about this centurion and his faith exactly where he puts it in his gospel. So if you, if you take a step back to Luke 6 and Luke 5 and Luke 4, you have Jesus establishing the beginning of his public ministry. He's starting off. And if you partner all the Gospels together, you kind of get this sequence. Jesus begins his public ministry by seeking out his cousin, John the Baptist, who is at the Jordan River, baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sin. They're repenting, and he's saying, repent, be washed clean, have this washing reflect that you don't want anything to do with all the junk that was in your life anymore, because the Messiah is coming, and he's now here. Jesus is the Messiah. He's coming and he's going to be ready to teach you. Be ready for him. Be ready to be taught. And so John is baptizing people saying, be clean. If there's any time in history you want to be clean, it's right now. Because the one who we've been waiting for is about to show up and he wants to talk to all of you people who are ready to hear him. And Jesus cuts through that crowd while John's preaching his guts out. John stops and sees his cousin Jesus Jesus walks into the water and John's like, see, I told you he was coming. He's here. He's in the water with me. Let's be baptized by Jesus. And then Jesus says, John, you need to baptize me. What? I need to baptize you? Yes. Why? Because I'm illustrating how it needs to be done from this point forward. And it starts here for my people. This is where it starts. So I'm going to show them where it starts. And this is what happens when it starts. When you want to unleash Jesus on the world, it starts at baptism. Biblically, it starts there. Baptism, what do we believe here? That it is the response to people who have confessed that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. You've leaned on the cross and leaned on the resurrection of Jesus that happened at the cross and crucifying all that you have ever been guilty of, are guilty of now, and will ever be guilty of. And you've leaned on him and said, Jesus, I claim that you're the only answer to that. And then you said publicly, I want to be in allegiance to that. I don't just want to claim it internally. I want the world to know because I want to be about the Jesus that saved me. And so I will reflect the cleansing that the cross brought for me and baptism is a reflection of the cleansing that the cross brings into our life our under the water is a reflection of our death our out of the water is a claiming of the power of the resurrection of jesus christ that he promises we are now a new creation and jesus says it starts here public ministry starts here It has to, because if you're not willing to be washed in allegiance to my name publicly, you won't live in allegiance to my name on the daily life that you have. You can say it inside to get out of hell all that you want, but when you say it publicly, it's about commitment. It's about covenant. It's about pursuit. It's about obedience. And Jesus says, John, wash me so that they'll all be washed 
and that they'll realize these two things. One, that they're in allegiance to me, and two, everybody who wa- is washed, their father is pleased in them, and it guarantees their receipt of the, go- of the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you that when you are washed in baptism, that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that your Father in heaven is pleased in you. Jesus starts there. And as soon as he's out of the water, the Holy Spirit, who came upon him at baptism, then takes him into temptation in the desert. He spends 40 days battling the temptation of this world, fighting. And at the end, he gets in a cage match with Satan and pounds him for a while. It's beautiful. His angels minister to him, and he begins to preach. And he preaches what we have as the Sermon on the Mount. He preaches this message. And he gets to the end of the message. This powerful, heavy, deep, totally different than anyone had ever heard before message. He's preaching, love your enemy. Take the plank out of your own eye. Here are the Beatitudes. Follow them. Be merciful. Be a peacemaker. Be pure. Be all of these things. Be persecuted on my behalf. Be all of these things. And you will find that your Father in heaven will bless you. Love these people who hate you. Pour out your life in front of them. He preaches all of this, and this whole crowd is standing around like, never heard that before. Whew. And he says, as soon as he finished teaching, he starts to walk into a town. Luke puts this story in there because Jesus is about us living it out, not just listening to it. And so we get this story of the centurion because if you read the sermon... And then the story, the story is living out the sermon in the marketplace where you live, where you go to work every day. See this guy, this centurion, he's a Roman soldier. He has a hundred soldiers who work for him. They serve him. He's been located at Capernaum more than likely to make sure that Roman rule stays heavy on anyone who would want to bring up an insurgence against them and try to overthrow the power. And so he's been sent there primarily to make sure that the Jews don't rise up and try to destroy him because these Jewish people have been claiming for years that they have a Messiah who is going to come back. He is going to reunite the nation of Israel and they're going to destroy any nation that stands in their way. And if you're Rome and you're hearing this, you're going, well, I mean, we can't let that happen. We're Rome. So we have to crush anybody that tries to do it. So they would put these centurions in all of these small towns and say, make sure you take care of business there. These people don't rise up against us. There are testimonies in a lot of different places where a lot of people were ruled by authority. They were ruled by pain. They were given law that caused them to either have to break their Jewish law or suffer extreme consequences. But this centurion didn't do that. We have in this story where the Jewish leaders that come to him, their testimony about him is he is a good man. He stands for our nation, which would be in opposition to his nation, and he even helped us build our synagogue. He hates us. His country hates us. They wouldn't want us to build our church in his town, but he actually helped us fundraise. And after we got the church built, he made sure that we were protected to go worship in it. This man 
valued us. Now, this man's not a believer in Jesus yet. This man is about to hear about Jesus. He's not a Christian, but yet he illustrates love. He illustrates compassion. He illustrates mercy. He illustrates what's best for the politics and government in, which, in the town in which he lives because he's a human. And he has a human moral code. And the first rule we have to take into whatever context that we live is love, peace, joy, faithfulness, self-control, all that stuff. Um, We've kind of deemed that as it's Christian stuff. It's not. It's human stuff. And our first rule is when we're at work and when we're at school and when we're talking politics and government, we need to just act human. Just be moral. Have standards. Because the centurion is simply saying, I wouldn't want that done to me, so I'm going to help and I'm going to support them. And by supporting them, even though he wasn't one of them, he wasn't part of them, he gained a voice with them. And when you choose to offer love and compassion and grace and mercy and truth and all of these things as a human, take the context out that your job is to get everyone to confess Jesus and get them out of, out of hell. Take that out of the context. Put into the context that your job is to be fully human to all the people around you, which makes you morally, as a whole, as humans, we have moral standards. And if we act on those at times, it means things that Christians do have no place there. It means less judgment, more support. It means less finger-pointing, more hugs. It means less, ooh, that does, that's not necessarily Christian, so I don't know that you should be allowed to build that here. Less protest, more discussion. That's human. That's where it starts. That's ground level. The centurion started ground level. And because he started ground level, when someone that he loved and valued, one of his servants, whom he didn't have to love and he didn't have to value, This guy was owned by him. He was enslaved to him. He was part of the business. He was provided for through the business that he was pretty much owned by. And whatever he got as stipend or as provision for being part of whatever he did would have been more than what would have been considered fair at that time. But because he got sick, instead of the centurion saying, he's sick, now he's... Now, I don't know that uh, we want to keep him around. The centurion said, I've got a servant who's sick. Bring him into the house. Put him on the bed. We've got to figure out how to get him well. Oh, I heard that Jesus is in town. I heard Jesus heals people. He heals the sick. Can someone go to Jesus? Who should go to Jesus? Oh, people who claim that the Messiah is from them. And he's claiming to be the Give me the Jewish leaders. They claim that Jesus is part of them so far because he claims to be a Messiah. I know the Jews are about a Messiah. Bring the Jewish leaders. Do you guys know Jesus? Well, we've heard of him, and we were in the crowd when he just spoke that. We're not really sure what to think of him right now because he's kind of blown out of the water everything that we've been taught him. But yeah, I guess we could probably get an audience with Jesus. Why? Centurion's like, my kid's sick. This slave, this servant, sick. And I'm sure those Jewish leaders are like, we'll do whatever it takes. You helped us with our synagogue. You helped us with our community. You did all of these things. Yes, whatever you ask, we'll help you with. Because he has bought with his actions toward them. He's purchased influence. And now they're saying, okay, we'll go to Jesus if that's what you want. And so they run off to Jesus. And the words of the Jewish leaders is, 
Jesus, would you come heal this servant because we know this man. He has been good to the nation of God and he's even helped us build the house of worship. I could see that conversation playing out on the way there. What do we ask Jesus? I don't know. What You think this, this Jewish leader, this rabbi is really going to go to a Gentile's house to help somebody out? What should we tell him? Okay, he's going to value God and he's going to value a house of worship. Let's tell them about what the centurion has done for God in the house of worship. I'll bet that gets Jesus moving. And they show up, and it gets Jesus moving, and he starts walking toward the house. And on his way, friends of this Roman soldier run out of the house. Stop, stop, stop! Jesus, don't come in here! Completely opposite what Christians do today. Jesus, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't, if I could just see your face, I would do your will. The centurion's going, I do not want to see your face. I don't, I'm not worthy of seeing you. You don't have to come here. I don't need you in here to heal this guy. I just need you to heal this guy. I don't need to see your face. I don't need to hug it out with you. I don't need to know that you are real by touching your flesh or by knowing without a doubt, by seeing your face, that you are Jesus. I've heard what you do. I believe it. I'm going to claim it. You don't have to come here. That's faith. If we begin to take into our workplaces and into our daily lives that kind of faith where we're saying, Jesus, if I could just see you, if I just knew what you wanted from me, if you would just tell me, just make it really clear. We do all those things and we get caught in bondage saying, I don't go, I don't go, I I almost go, I almost go, but I haven't felt Jesus in a while. I work with high school, junior high, and college students a lot. They want to feel everything and none of it's good for them. And they especially want to feel Jesus. Well, I can't feel, I, can't, I just wish I could reach out and touch Jesus and him be there. That doesn't take faith. In our lives, if we knew that God was going to make everything okay for our kids, we wouldn't have to trust him. If we knew that Jesus was going to raise them up to change the world, and we knew it, and we said, Jesus, I give them to you, and now they're in your hands, and you're going to carry them because I can see you physically, and I feel so good about it. There's no faith in that. But the centurion says, I don't need you here. I need your power here. When you go to work, a lot of times, it has to be difficult to hear messages about taking Jesus to work and then go, how? How do I take Jesus to work? Like, I just walk up to the water cooler and say, so about that Jesus guy? Am I out with a guy and he's saying, man, my marriage is a mess. And you're going, well, you know, if you would surrender your life to Jesus, then he would... That guy's like, I, you are weird. And you're trying to figure out the context. How do I take Jesus in? What if the context changed and we claimed that Jesus' power is already there? And all we have to do is claim the power that Jesus has within the context. You can hear a story from one of your employees, and you don't have to respond to the employee. You don't have to respond to your boss, your coworker, your friend. You don't have to look at them and say, well, Jesus would say this. You can look at them and say, wow, that sounds really tough. And you can walk away saying, Jesus, we need your power here. You can beg for the power of God on behalf of the people before the people even know. The guy's on the bed sick and he's about to die. I don't know that the centurion is going, I sent for Jesus. Jesus is going to come. He's going to make it better. We're going to get this better for you. He's just laying on the bed dying. 
The centurion is saying, I have faith in his power. I'm going to call upon the name of his power on behalf of the person that I love. So the first thing we do, we have to have influence in the context of the life that we live without it having direct attachment to our name as Christians. We're just people. And as people, we're just loving. We're just merciful. We're just compassionate. We're just there like the centurion was. And then, when it takes something bigger than being just a person takes, then Jesus comes into play every time. Healing comes from Jesus. Transformation comes from Jesus. Spiritual freedom comes from Jesus. Bank account goes in the red. We need provision for somebody that that we love comes from Jesus. All of these things, then we dive into and say, but Jesus, you don't have to show up. I'm going to trust the power, the healing power that your name carries. So Jesus is standing outside of this guy's house, not allowed in. Could you imagine? Jesus is coming to your house. <laughs> You're like, stay outside until I clean the bathroom. Then you can come in. Or could you just clean the bathroom real quick and just say that and it be clean? Then you can come in. Instead of coming in... Je- this centurion says, no, you stay out. I'm not even worthy of being in your presence. And the centurion, through his friends, gives that little statement that says, I know what it's like, Jesus. Jesus in his mind in that humor has to be like, you have no idea what it's like to be me, but good try. Um, I appreciate that you're playing the game. I oversee 100 people. And he's like, I oversee the universe. Um, and the stars. I kind of spoke that star into where it is. So, okay, but keep coming. I have a hundred guys that work for me. When I say go, they go. When I say stop, they stop. Whatever I say to do, they do. I know power and authority. You have it. You don't need to come in here. You have more than what I have. I acknowledge that. I surrender to it. You are so much more powerful than I am. I don't need you in here. I'm just going to sit at the bed of my sick friend and I'm going to watch your power. I'm not going to go looking for Jesus. I'm going to claim Jesus right where I am. And that is the key, I believe, to unleashing Jesus Christ in your sphere of influence is claiming the power of Jesus with whoever's right next to you not leaving them to go get Jesus and bringing them back. Not picking them up and carrying them to Jesus inside of a church, but staying with them until they're better, fixed, healed, transformed, completely different in all of their attitude, action, lifestyle. You stay with them. Why do I believe this is the way to live? Because in that last part, In verse 9 it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. In the New Testament, that word marveled is used around 20 times. Thamadzoe is the word. Every time but this one, it's people talking about Jesus and what he does. Every time in the New Testament, it's people marveling at his works. It's people marveling at his words. It's people marveling at his experiences. This is the only time that Jesus looks at anyone and says, you're amazing. That's impressive. 
the only person that Jesus looked into his eyes and said, you're amazing, he never looked into his eyes. He stood in his front yard because the guy said he was too unworthy to even see him. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Because instead of seeing the face of the physical Jesus, the centurion got to kneel at the bed of his sick friend. When Jesus said, there's no one in my whole church that has this kind of faith. And the servant said, really? Well, tell him that. And they walked back into the house. And when they got into the house, the servant's walking around healed. So instead of this Roman leader looking at Jesus, the Roman leader was looking at his broken friend. And he saw Jesus fix him. The right place for us to be, right next to broken people. So we can watch when Jesus fixes them. So that we can claim his name when he fixes all of their brokenness. Because if we're all in here, begging God to move, begging to see God, hoping that he would just show his face, there's nobody out there to bring his testimony back that he's actually doing everything that people in church are praying for. We're just not there to see it. Be where God has called you to be. Be right next to the broken so that you can see God. Just a couple of weeks ago, a girl shared with Sarah and I that she was going to be having a baby. And that her first thoughts were abortion. And in that moment, we could have grabbed our picket signs and our bumper stickers and protested God wouldn't be honored by that he would hate that you're going to murder this kid we could do we could do a, a lot of things that Christians do in the name of anti-abortion or we could have hugged it out with her we could have put her head on our shoulder and said we love you and we will walk through this with you If we didn't love you, we might abandon you. But we've said we love you, and we will love you. And that doesn't mean saying, oh, how are you doing with that? Or, here, read these six pamphlets. It means us saying, you want to go talk to somebody? We will go talk to somebody with you. You want to go see your options? We will see your options with you. You want to wrestle over your options? We will go through the gut-wrenching pain of wrestling over your options with you. You want to talk to the dad about it? We'll talk to the dad about it. You want to talk to your parents about it? We'll talk to your parents about it with you. We will do whatever it takes for God to be glorified through this decision that you made without thinking it all the way through, and now you've got consequences. And all of those consequences have implications, we know. But we're not going to tell you about them. We're just going to love you. She said, and I heard what they would do to a baby if I had an abortion. And there was everything inside of me that said, no. So now it's adoption. And we said, okay, we love you in that too. What do we need to do? We will not walk away from you based on your decision. We will just love you through whatever painful agonizing, hurting decision that you make. That's what the world needs. 
That's what every homosexual you work with needs. That's what every Muslim that you're connected to needs. That's what everyone who has a politically different perspective than you have needs. That's what your boss needs. That's what the employee that's sleeping around with somebody else at work and you know it. That's what he or she needs. That's what the guy who is in debt to everybody needs. That's the guy who just lost five grand on betting on the final four this weekend that's what he needs that's what the broken parent needs that's what the single mom needs that's what the marriage that's train wreck needs that's what every junior high and high school student that are running contact with needs they need to know that no matter what they do say or commit as an act you're not walking away that's how cj hunter changed my life with jesus in his heart That's how we actually bring Christ to the workplace. It's not any simpler or harder than that. We got to get in. Dig in deep. Claim the power of Jesus. Faith of the centurion. A Roman man with a heart like Jesus. And the dead came back to life. There's a lot of dead around us. God wants to redeem it and restore it all. You have an opportunity to do it through your platform. You could change the world. Just see the world the way this centurion did. And claim the power of Jesus in your own life and in the life of all those people that you connect with on a daily basis. Let's pray together. Jesus, I praise you for your word and for this freeing truth that you want to be known by everyone in this world. You long to have everyone know your love. God, I pray that we claim and protect that how you are known through this world comes through the name of Jesus and that we would know his name and that we would claim his power and that we would love the people around us toward that power of Jesus. That we would depend on you to bring about the healing, spiritual healing, the emotional, the physical, all of the healing that we need to experience in order to have freedom and a newness in our creation. God, I pray that your son Jesus would be powerfully moving through this church and our people as we go to work tomorrow, as we go to school, as we go to practice, as we go to all of those volunteer stops on our way as a good parent or grandparent. God, I pray that your power would be present when we speak to our husband and our wives and our kids and our grandparents and our moms and dads. Unleash your gospel on the influence that we have in our lives. I pray that your name and your renown would be glorified. It's through Jesus. Amen. Have an amazing week.